0: should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw God bring Israel safely through the Red Sea and drown the armies of Pharaoh beneath its waves, and as Michael pointed out for us, it was the final decreation of Egypt, even if it, as it was a recreation for the people of Israel, a new birth for Israel. But the Exodus story doesn't end there, and God doesn't take Israel straight from deliverance right into the promised land, does he? First, he takes Israel through the wilderness. We can draw a parallel with our own experience, can't we? In Christ, God has already delivered us from sin and death. But after saving us, God doesn't immediately whisk us away to heaven. He doesn't instantly usher in the new heavens and the new earth, much as we might wish it were so. Instead, he takes us through the wilderness of life in a fallen world. If we can begin to understand why God takes Israel through the wilderness and what he is doing with them there, we may better understand how to walk by faith through our own wilderness. And with that goal before us, let me pray for our time in the word. God of the Exodus, your word says you have delivered us from sin and death through your son, Jesus Christ. Yet here we are afflicted by our own sin, by the sin of others, surrounded by death on every side. Teach us how to walk through the wilderness, not as those who rebel against you, but as those who trust, as those who obey, who depend on you for daily bread. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we begin in Exodus chapter 15 verse 22. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, the primary themes that we're going to see in in three different stories today are these. Grumbling, provision, and testing. We're going to see grumbling, provision, and testing in each of these stories, and that's kind of the theme of the wilderness. The Israelites have traveled three days without water, and then when they finally find water, it's undrinkable. Israel begins to grumble against Moses. Now, let's be honest, after three days like that, all of us will begin to question the competence of our guide. Moses cries out to Yahweh, and Yahweh shows him a log. Now, the, the Hebrew word is literally the word tree. I guess it's hard to imagine Moses throwing a whole tree in the water, but the word is tree. Yahweh showed him a tree. And he throws the tree into the bitter water, and the water becomes sweet. So we've had grumbling, and now God provides. We have provision. God makes bitter water sweet. And there's probably symbolism here. That word bitter was also used to describe the bitter service that Israel endured under Pharaoh. It was used to describe the bitter herbs they ate at Passover. So perhaps God has that labor in mind and God is showing Israel how he will turn the bitterness, the bitter service and slavery of Egypt into sweetness when they arrive in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of sweetness. Trees and fresh water appear in other places in Scripture. In Ezekiel's vision of the temple, he says, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So there are trees at this ideal temple, and the water becomes fresh. That same imagery is picked up in Revelation to describe the church, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what we have here with this tree and this water is an image of God, through Moses, planting a tree in bitter water and turning it sweet, bringing new life, bringing healing. Indeed, God will name himself Israel's healer in just a moment. He is showing them the kind of provision they can expect of him, even in the wilderness, if they will stick with him, if they will remain faithful to him. Perhaps also this, if Israel will remain faithful to Yahweh, Israel too will be a tree that makes the bitter water of the Gentile sea sweet. They will bear fruit, and that fruit will be for the healing of the nations. So Moses takes this tree and he throws it into the water. Now when you take a tree or part of a tree in your hand, what does it become? It becomes a staff. Earlier, God used Moses' staff to relieve the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Moses used his staff to turn the Nile water to blood, which is kind of a reversal of this miracle, isn't it? He used his staff to part the water of the Red Sea, turning it sweet for the Israelites and bitter for the Egyptians. Here, God continues to act through Moses' staff. And he will use Moses' staff to bring more water here in just a moment. As Christians, we can see all of this as a type of Christ, who, according to the apostles, was hung on a tree. And on that tree, Jesus was cast into the bitter waters of our fallen flesh, into sin and death. But God did this in order to bring the sweetness of new life by Christ's resurrection, making Him the tree of life who brings healing to the nations. Verse 25. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. So God says he's testing Israel in the wilderness. He's testing them. Remember this. What is the test according to verse 26? Will they listen to God and obey his word? That's the test. And he says if they do, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on Egypt. And the diseases here refers to all the plagues, right? God sheltered Israel from the plagues in Egypt, and he will continue to shelter them if they will trust in him and obey his words. If they reject his words as Pharaoh rejected Yahweh's word, then Yahweh will treat them as he treated Pharaoh. He will bring afflictions and plagues upon them. He says, for I am Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh, your healer. Yahweh is showing Israel his character. He is the God who heals. He is the one who makes bitterness into sweetness, who gives life to the dead. Verse 27, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Oh, that's a nice little picture, right? Springs and palm trees. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. Now, we have very specific numbers given here, right? We know the biblical authors don't waste ink. There are 12 springs and 70 palm trees. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. 70 is the number of nations listed in Genesis 10, the other nations of the world. So probably what we're to see in this detail is a symbolic support of of the point that I just made a moment ago. If Israel will be faithful to Yahweh, He will use them to bring life to the nations. Just as the twelve springs water the seventy palm trees. Just as the tree makes the bitter water sweet. And this brings us to chapter 16 then. Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. Now, it's not the wilderness of Sin, like we're thinking of Sin, but it's in that word Sinai, right? It's the name of the place. They came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Notice, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. Who died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt? Again, we have a story of grumbling and provision and testing. First, more grumbling. They were threatened by thirst, now by hunger. And in their hunger, they fear And in their fear, the Israelites default to the old world. They wish that they were back in Egypt. They wish they were Egyptians because that's who was killed by the hand of Yahweh in Egypt. Sorry, my iPad reset. That was handy. In their hunger, they begin to fear, and they default to the old world. So much for leaving the leaven of Egypt behind, right? They'd rather go back. Now, how could God respond to this situation? How do you respond when you've bent over backwards to help someone, and they respond by criticizing and by complaining about you? Parents, how do you respond when your kids are constantly bugging you with, I'm hungry, I'm hungry? even though they didn't eat the supper that you cooked for them, right? But here, God doesn't punish Israel for their grumbling, not at this point. Verse 4, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So instead of destroying Israel, as they have asked, Yahweh promises to rain down bread from heaven. One commentator said, if any need convincing of the grace of God in the Old Testament, they need only look here. God's response to their grumbling and rebellion is gracious provision, giving Israel favor, though they have done nothing to deserve it. He gives provision, but he also gives law. He gives instructions on how to steward this provision. He commands them, only gather enough for one day. So the law provides the test. Israel chooses to trust and obey the law or not. For whose benefit is this test? Is this so Israel can prove themselves worthy of God's love? Or is it so that they can learn something about God? Moses tells them the purpose of the test. Verse 6, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because He has heard your grumbling. The test is there to teach Israel. That they would come to know Yahweh, the God who defines Himself as their healer, as the covenant keeping God who delivers His people. Instead of teaching to the test, God tests to teach, to teach His people who He is so that they will begin to trust Him, so that they will come to depend on Him and Him alone. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. So that's the provision. Now the test. Verse 16. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat a day's supply. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now God tells them to only gather what they can eat. Why do you think God doesn't want them hoarding this manna up? He seems to want Israel to trust him anew every day. This is one of the main reasons, or one of the main lessons, I should say, that Israel was to learn in the wilderness. And it is one of the main lessons we need to learn in our wilderness. We are to trust God One day at a time. Renewing our trust with the renewing of the sun each morning. It seems like a simple command. We use this saying all the time. Take it one day at a time. It's so hard to obey, isn't it? Having to depend on God each day raises our fears. We fear that God will not provide. That he will not come through. Or that he won't provide in the way we think he should provide. We fear that we will not survive if we don't take matters into our own hands, and so we don't trust God, and we go outside of his law to secure our own safety, our own comfort, our own deliverance. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. This is the first reference to the idea of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. That Sunday through Friday, Israel would perform their labor, but Saturday would be a day of rest. No work was to be done just as God rested on the seventh day when he created the world. And this Sabbath principle will be codified when God gives Israel the law through Moses at Mount Sinai in a couple chapters here. But think about how significant this idea of Sabbath rest is for a people coming out of slavery. Think of what this shows them about Yahweh. He values work, But he also values rest and gives rest. Their previous master, Pharaoh, did not give the people rest, but made their labor bitter. Pharaoh did not provide the supplies they needed to even do their work. But Yahweh gives extra. He gives them more on Friday so that they will have what they need on Saturday, securing their rest for them. But still, verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Didn't get the memo, I guess. We just can't resist taking the wheel, can we? Our fears keep us from enjoying the rest that Yahweh provides. Verse 28, Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Echoing from Genesis 1, when Yahweh rested. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. We're told the manna is... Uh, Reminiscent of honey. So it's looking forward to the promised land, which Yahweh says would be a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a foretaste. You see, even in the wilderness, God gives Israel a foretaste of their future destination. Does God give us a foretaste of the future during our time in the wilderness? Yes, He does. He gives us the Lord's Supper. Because our destiny is to be resurrected and transformed as Christ is. So we get to feed on his flesh and blood as a foretaste of what we will experience in the future in our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. And this foretaste of what is to come is meant to sustain us now, just as the manna sustained Israel in the wilderness. The Lord's Supper sustains us in the wilderness of life, giving us hope for what we will find on the other side if we remain faithful to Yahweh. So now we come to chapter 17. We're going to look at the first part of chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masah, and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So once again, we have Israel grumbling against Moses. Israel refuses to believe God even after multiple signs. Who else in the book refuses to believe God even after multiple signs? It's Pharaoh. Again, the Israelites identifying here more with their Egyptian oppressors than with the God who has delivered them. They always want to go back to the old world, the world of slavery, which Yahweh has freed them from. Again, we see this theme of testing, but but this time it's different, isn't it? This time it is the people of Israel who test Yahweh. Now he has tested them to see if they will be faithful. Now they are testing him to see if he will be faithful. But the irony of this is that Yahweh has continually shown himself to be faithful throughout the Exodus story. He has never failed them. And Israel has continually shown themselves to be unfaithful. God's not the one in need of testing. We see again the theme of provision as well. God tells Moses, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Now, As you know, there's no more unlikely water source than a rock. So this shows God's total sovereignty over his creation and over the situation of Israel in the wilderness. God says he will stand before them there on the rock, whatever that means or whatever that looked like. But it's as though he is identifying with the rock. God himself is rock-like, he is constant, he is faithful, he is strong. But he is also the provider and the source of life. So a rock pouring out water is a wonderful image of who God is. The Apostle Paul picked up this imagery in our epistle reading for today, 1 Corinthians 10:1 through 4. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, how can Paul say that the rock was Christ when Christ hadn't come to earth yet? We've already seen the rock was a symbol for Yahweh, the deliverer of God's people. And Jesus is the image of the invisible, the firstborn son of the father. In him, the God of the Exodus has taken on flesh. So Paul can say that all these events of deliverance looked forward to and were fulfilled in Christ. He is the rock that gives the water of life. Christians have made another connection here. Just as the rock was struck and poured out water, so Christ was struck by a spear at His crucifixion and water poured from His side. Thus Christ is shown to be the means through which God delivers His people and gives them life, just as the rock in the wilderness did. So the wilderness wanderings of Israel begin... With these three stories, water at Merah, bread in the wilderness of sin, and water again at Rephidim. In each of these stories, we see this pattern of grumbling and provision and testing. Why is there grumbling? Because the wilderness is not an easy place. There is no food or water for crying out loud. It's also a place where there's nothing else that Israel can depend upon but God himself. God is forcing Israel into a situation where they must rely on Him. And they grumble about it. Now, frustration and crying out is not always a bad thing. Consider all the psalms that we have that cry out to God, wondering if He has abandoned His people. It sounds very similar to the things the Israelites say. But those psalms are cries of faith, where the singer cries out to God because God is His only hope. The complaining of Israel is different. It is rebellious complaining. It is a faithless complaining. It looks backward to Egypt instead of looking forward to Yahweh's deliverance to come. But in each of these three cases, how does God respond to their grumbling? God responds with gracious provision. He shows himself to be worthy of their trust. He shows himself to be sovereign over the dangers that they face in the wilderness. He shows himself to be committed to the covenant promises he made to Abraham. And in these stories, God tests Israel. But not to see if they will prove worthy of his love. He's not waiting to see if they will be good enough to deserve his love. He has already delivered them, hasn't he? No, God is testing his people for their benefit so that they will learn how to trust and obey him. And if they can learn to trust and obey Yahweh in the wilderness, that will lead to flourishing and fruitfulness when they arrive in the promised land. The New Testament tells us about another son of Yahweh who passed through the waters, God's own son, Jesus. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and immediately after passing through the waters, Yahweh sends his son into the wilderness, doesn't he? He spends 40 days there, surely a reflection of the 40 years Israel will spend in the wilderness. And there, Jesus faces three temptations, three tests, just as Israel faced three tests in our passages. In his wilderness, Jesus is also tested with hunger. The tempter comes to him and tells him to turn stones to bread, perhaps recalling water from the rock and manna from heaven. But rather than grumbling about his hunger as Israel did, or grasping after more manna as Israel did, Jesus preaches to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus passes the first test. Satan tests Jesus' obedience once again. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he tells him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. God will deliver you. This was an opportunity for Jesus to vindicate his own identity as the Son of God, to show that he really was God's anointed one, the Messiah, But instead, Jesus quotes scripture once again. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Israel tested the Lord at Rephidim, Jesus refuses to test the Lord in his wilderness. And thus he passes the second test. Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, says he will give them to Jesus if he will but bow before Satan. And unlike Israel, who so quickly reverted to the old world, who longed to return to the kingdom of Egypt and all the glory they had there, who pined for the days of service to wicked Pharaoh, unlike Israel, Jesus says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus passes the final test the gospel authors are showing us that jesus is the new and better israel the true son of god he too is sent into the wilderness he too is tested but where israel failed jesus succeeds he trusts god he clings to god's word he obeys god's word And so the wilderness for him is not a place of condemnation, but a place of confirmation. He is shown to be the faithful son. He is matured. He is perfected by his wilderness testing, perfected through suffering. And being made perfect, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, as the author of Hebrews says. As the one who passed the test of the wilderness, Jesus has become our only hope of passing the test of our wilderness. He has become the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He has become the solid rock whose riven side pours forth a river of life. How does God provide for us in our wilderness? He gives us Jesus. He is the word, the water, the bread, and the wine that will sustain us in our wilderness and bring us safely through. And we must receive this bread from heaven. We must feed on him. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. You see, the only way that we can pass through the wilderness of this life and all its tests is if we abide in, if we are found in Jesus Christ. We have to remain in the one who has already passed through the wilderness of sin and death. We must cling to the one who has passed that test for us. How do we remain in him? How do we not grumble but walk by faith through this wilderness? We do this by trusting Jesus, by being baptized into his baptism, by hearing his word and obeying it, by feeding on him and receiving his life at his table. We will never pass the test by our own frail power. Indeed, the whole point of the test was learning to trust God to do the saving, trust God to do the providing, Resting in the provision he has given. So let us rest in the midst of our wilderness. Let us worship our God. Let us receive his word and keep it. Let us feast on the bread from heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as those hungry and tired, still clinging to to the old ways, still trying to secure our own safety and security and provision. Help us to receive the provision you have rained down on us from heaven. Help us to put our trust in your faithful son who has passed the test. And nourished and strengthened by him, let us be flourishing trees who bear healing fruit for the nations. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.